Hello, traders, analysts, and other followers of the energy industry. My name is Corey Stewart, and I'm a senior analyst with Refinitiv, your go-to partner for energy analysis and data. As always, I'm here with Jim Mitchell, Refinitiv's head of America's oil analysts, and we're going to take you through what's happening in the energy in the Western Hemisphere. Today, we'll be talking about the impact of influence and corruption in the oil business. Okay, Jim, what's going on in Canada? When one has a parliamentary form of government, influence is 100% the name of the game. For anything to get done, you must persuade others that most of the time don't agree with you to see your point of view. Unfortunately, some take the shortcut that is corruption. Where this may happen in the Canadian oil business, I can only think of two such cases, and both happened outside the Canadian borders. I want to talk about two major influences affecting the Canadian oil business, the East-West divide and the non-Canadian intervention in domestic issues. The East-West divide, as it relates to energy, is essentially the cultural difference between Quebec and Ontario and Alberta. The former are powered by massive renewable hydro plants and have a very green view, and the later is powered by oil and gas business. There are also some Berluti versus Lucchese differences. That's masters of the universe Italian shoes versus wealthy oil man boots. The green colored glasses the East wears obscures the fact that the oil and gas sector is the single largest subsector in the Canadian economy at 10.6% of GDP. The mixed message mindset seems to be behind the indifference to help Alberta get access to the Pacific and foreign markets, yet buying the second best distribution pathway for the industry. Another aspect that has been neglected is that the Canadian oil and gas business leads the world in ESG benchmarking. Why Ottawa is not exporting this expertise? Beyond me. The non-Canadian influence on Canadian petropolitics grew to a new level the end of 2019 and into, into 2020. Certainly greenhouse gas emissions are a global thing, yet a disproportionate amount of money was funneled into the lobbyist groups that do nothing but block, attack, and harass the Canadian oil business. Fair or not, that's what lobbyists do, and that's how lobbies work. My point is, these lobbyists are getting paid to do one thing, but are they considering what their actions are having on Canadian families, Canadian companies, or Alberta's ability to pay taxes into the government? Alberta's ability to generate revenue hurts the residents of Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, Prince Edward Island, and Labrador far more than it hurts Alberta residents. Finally, have these lobbyists considered that the refineries where this oil is going will get this grade from somewhere. If it's not Canadian with the highest of ESG standards, it will be from somewhere else where the oil is produced that does not match Canada's standards. But these influencers aren't getting paid to consider that. That's interesting. Well, you know, there's not any influence or corruption in the U.S., so you probably don't have a lot to say about the U.S. today, right? <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Influence and corruption in the U.S. market. 
Do I talk about bid rigging, counterfeiting, cooking the books, flooding the boats, spoofing, washing, or insider trading? And I haven't even gotten to the immoral stuff yet. Nope, nope. Let's keep this family appropriate. My preteen daughter likes to listen. She says, I remind her of Justin Bieber. If he was tone deaf and like 100 years old. <laughs> all right, all right. Good talk. I feel pepped up. Let's talk about outside influences in the U.S. The influential forces acting on the U.S. crude market are global in scale. I'm only going to touch on four, and just briefly, Corey's region is much more in focus with this episode. The U.S. dollar in relation to U.S. crude prices is an on-again, off-again relationship. The general idea being, when the U.S. dollar is down, crude becomes cheaper on the world market. Hence, it gets bid and prices go up. At least that's the theory. The relationship with OPEC has grown more and more contentious since December 18, 2015, when the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2016 was signed by President Obama. This lifted the export ban on crude oil from the U.S. In 2016, the U.S. crude system was not in a very efficient place to export crude. It was certainly possible, but decades of infrastructure was built that was designed to import oil. That has steadily changed, and so the relationship and influence with OPEC. And that brings up the last two influencers that are unique and complex in their own right, but are intricately linked, Russia and trade. After World War II, Russia was a Cold War enemy of the U.S., but now sits more as a of aggressive frenemy of the U.S. That's sometimes friend, sometimes enemy. Saudi Arabia, being the biggest producer in OPEC and the wealthiest country in the Middle East, has a unique position in the world. Both the U.S. and Russia, and well, everyone else, knows that. For decades, the U.S. has supplied Saudi Arabia with defense systems, planes, radar, missile systems, yada, yada, yada. In the New World Order, partially defined by U.S. presence in oil exports, Russia is courting Saudi Arabia with their ability to supply military gadgetry. To give you some scale, this is on the order of hundreds of billions of dollars. So you can start to see how twisty these relationships have become and how U.S. crude oil is becoming a trade ship influenced by more than merely price. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. And now, Jim, it's time for you to tell us about Mexico. Ah, it was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. The Mexico oil business is in the midst of a Charles Dickens novel. No, not that one. Think A Christmas Carol. The ghosts of corruption's past, present, and maybe future seem to dominate Pemex. Let's start with the most insidious of the ghosts, the ghost of corruption past. Arguably, the biggest power this ghost has is the notion that the Mexican government, and therefore the people, should reap every peso out of every aspect of this raw material. This was the thought process of the constitutional creation of Pemex in 1938, and it still exists today. Here's the tyrannical part of that mindset. That was the way of the world at that point in history. 
For example, Standard Oil was so big, at one point it was 90% of the U.S. oil and refining market. Why wouldn't anyone want to emulate that kind of success? The U.S. Congress broke Standard Oil into 34 pieces, all of which that had to compete with each other. Mexico had no anti-competition law until 1993, 103 years after the U.S. version called the Sherman Act. It wasn't until 2013 and the constitutional reform that Mexico set up two competition authorities, one to break up telecommunications monopoly held by the richest guy in the world at that time, Carlos Slim Helu, and another for every other industry in Mexico. The problem for both the telecommunications and oil is was obsolete. The world found more efficiency when E&P and refining are separated. The U.S. broke this bond between production and refining in 1911. China never had this bond to break, and Russia separated E&P from refining in the 1993 reforms. Saudi Arabia is a notable exception. Even that, I would argue, they are underperforming as they are one of three largest producers in the world for oil, but rate seventh for refining. Unfortunately, the only way to, dis- to escape this ghost without breaking Pemex apart is extend the process by taking on debt and hope someone in the future can bust this ghost. That brings us to the ghost of corruption present. The former president of Mexico, Enrique Nieto, and former finance minister Luis Edgaray are under corruption indictments around bribes being directed to Mr. Nieto's re-election campaign fund. The former head of Pemex, Emilio Lazoya Austin, is the one who spilled the beans, as he was being grilled over his own corruption indictment over accepting bribes from Brazilian construction company Odebrecht. If our leaders are doing it, why shouldn't we get a taste? This is a cancerous form of corruption. It takes many years for the trust and leadership to come back once it is broken. So this brings us to the ghost of corruption future. For those that don't know the Dickens tale, the ghost of Christmas past shows Ebenezer Scrooge what he was like as an innocent young man, and then the actions that took him down the dark path. The ghost of Christmas present shows Ebenezer the damaging effects of his actions, but then a glimmer of hope. The ghost of Christmas future then shows Ebenezer two potential futures. One future is the devastating effects of his actions on the people in his realm. The other future is what could be. Enter President Obrador and the current U.S.-China relation. The U.S. and China can both see the immense potential in the Mexican auto, manufacturing, and energy markets. The U.S. buys 83% of the Mexican auto production, about 70% of manufacturing production, and around 90% of Mexican oil output. Then the U.S. supplies Mexico back with refined products. China certainly sees that. And they're even willing to go further by investing hundreds of billions of dollars via their Belt and Road Initiative. And in doing so, they envision Mexico as the manufacturing and distribution hub of all the Americas. 
So this is where the gasp comes in. Regular listeners have heard me talk about the pathologies of debt-fueled growth. Weigh that against the possibility of growing your way out of their current debt situation. Weigh that against the debt trap diplomacy that has plagued the Belt Initiative. The corrupting factor in this ghost that President Orbador faces is choice. Heavy, consequential choice, whichever way he goes. So, Corey, where are we off to today? Well, today I'm going to start with Guyana. My theme today is around the Caribbean. And though those of us in the U.S. may not typically think of Guyana as a Caribbean country, it is considered so based on its historical relationships with the region and with CARICOM, of which it is a full member. Guinea's citizens have ancestry from the world over, but the two dominant groups in the country that each comprise over 40% of the population, so greater than 80%, can trace their ancestry to either Africa or the Indian subcontinent. Now, I'm an energy person, not an expert in Guyana's history or demographics, but the source of issues and slow growth in the country historically have been largely due to friction between these two groups. An intergroup strife and assertions over mismanagement of the oil resources is what caused the conundrum that was the presidential election. To review, first, there was the March 2nd presidential election in which Guyana's incumbent presidents, a Partnership for National Unity slash Alliance for Change, coalition claimed victory. After reluctantly agreeing to a vote recount, the country's chief elections officer refused to issue official results and asserted that several thousand votes for the opposition party, the People's Progressive Party slash Civic or PPPC, should be thrown out. With those votes included, it meant that the incumbent would be unseated. Well, as you can imagine, this all didn't sit very well domestically or internationally. Legal challenges ensued. The U.S. threatened sanctions against, quote, individuals who have been responsible for or complicit in undermining democracy in Guyana, end quote. This all happened post a December 2018 no-confidence vote against President David Granger, which effectively started the process to have the March 2020 vote in the first place. The vote and subsequent election issues are behind us, and a new president, Mohammed Irfan Ali, was sworn in in August. This is the same type of influence and corruption we've seen elsewhere, and the type of election games we're now seeing here in the U.S. What I don't feel like we're really seeing much of of is actual corruption within the oil industry. First, uh, I think this can be attributable to Guyana's not feeling of the full resource curse that bestows many countries as soon as they start producing the resources. I mean, this is well because of COVID. Oil has flowed, money has come in, but not out of the gate to levels that were expected when this endeavor began. Second, large players like Exxon and Hess are those primarily responsible for what's happening in the energy sector. Now, look, I'm not going to bat for Exxon, but since every other day the majors are being taken to the mat over every other issue, the last thing Exxon wants to do is commit any malfeasance in Guyana. Now, this hasn't stopped industry observers from asserting wrongdoing, most notably with the way Exxon approached Guyana's natural resources minister at the time, Raphael Trotman, who has been accused of having close ties to the Guyanese attorney that represented Exxon in the agreement to renew its oil license with the country. Nonetheless, production has continued, and though Guyana has fined Exxon for flaring and wastewater violations, the two actually signed an agreement last week approving Exxon's Payara development plan. Interesting. 
from a South American to Caribbean perspective, what country largely comes to mind in regards to our theme today? <laughs> yeah. Does it start with uh, Venice and end with Abuela? So Transparency International puts out an annual corruption perceptions index. And though Venezuela didn't rank dead last, that particular trophy goes to Somalia, certainly didn't fare well either. 173rd out of the 180 ranked. Now, I detailed some corruption-related intel in one of our mid-August podcasts, but was more concerned with Maduro and Pedavesa using its own ships to transport crude. Venezuela has a long history of corruption, starting with, arguably, its War of Independence in 1813. Simon Bolivar, who led several Latin American countries away from Spanish rule, put a death sentence on corruption but he was arguably engaged in corrupt acts himself. And this was just the beginning. Through the years, uh, leaders of the Venezuelan government have stolen from the treasury, conspired with outside forces against the country, caused repression on a number of fronts, used public funds to enhance own properties, etc., etc., etc. And hey, this was all before Chavez. But again, I'm not here to give a history lesson on Venezuela proper, I'm actually more concerned with Venezuelan influence on the Caribbean. The island of Curacao, a constituent country of the Netherlands, has a very high standard of living compared with its neighbors in the Caribbean and actually the world. Back years ago, when I was really into scuba diving, it was a go-to locale, but unfortunately, when I was never able to visit. Its economy is largely supported by tourism, but also financial services, which got their start back around World War I. So it's a mature industry. And also shipping. And Curacao has a, a naturally deep harbors. But it's also about 40 miles away from Venezuela. So after oil was discovered in the Maracaibo Basin, Venezuela started looking around for where to refine the production. And Shell delivered with its construction of the Isla refinery on Curacao, which when it took first oil in 1918, was the largest refinery in the world. Things at the Isla refinery, or on the island in general, weren't all peaches and cream over the years, and after operating the refinery for several years at a loss, Shell finally sold the refinery to the government. Then the government leased the refinery to Petavesa. Now, this refinery has a capacity of 335,000 barrels per day. It renders Curacao as a country with one of the highest per capita carbon emissions rates, but it is responsible for 8% of the island's GDP. For Petavesa, it was a critical piece of its operations. When Venezuela allowed its domestic refineries to fall into disrepair, well, some of the gasoline and diesel shorts could be made up with the Isla production. The facility played a critical role in storing and shipping heavy crude to China and India, including for the benefit of the country's oil for loans agreement. And prior to the deep sanctions by the U.S., the facility imported U.S. light crude for refining and to use as cutter stock for Venezuelan heavy crude. Well... Deep government corruption and misdealings don't just hurt the countries that activities are occurring in. They often extend elsewhere. Petavesa was unable to renew its lease in the facility when it came up in December of last year, and RDK, the legal entity that is the owner of the refinery, has struggled immensely to find a new operator. First, Curacao looked to Chinese companies to operate the refinery, which pledged to invest over $5 billion to upgrade the facility. That didn't work out. Then a deal was signed with Klesch Group, which is going to invest, quote, hundreds of millions, end quote, into the facility. But that hasn't really worked out either, though I understand that time ended to December of this year. 
So now that so now what is Curacao doing with the facility and associated storage? Well, trying to invest to get storage up to shape, and it has leased space to SPS drilling, but ultimately has resorted to suing PDVSA for missed lease payments, unpaid storage fees, labor debts, and improper maintenance. RDK, RDK actually seized Venezuelan oil stored at the facility uh, a couple weeks ago. But Curacao is not the only one of the ABC islands. Cuba, Bonaire, Curacao, islands that are part of the Netherlands, that Venezuela has negatively affected. Bonaire hosts the Bonaire Petroleum Corporation, or BOPEC, which is a 10 million barrel tank farm owned by PDVSA. The most recent severe U.S. sanctions on PDVSA, BOPEC, like other company assets, had fallen into disrepair. And just this August, the, faci the facility had deteriorated to the point of immediate environmental risk, which sparked an order by local authorities to move oil stored in several tanks to safer storage. Venezuela has had dealings with Aruba as well. As a matter of history, back in 2012, Valera Energy, the then owner of Aruba's sole refinery, one with 235,000 barrels per day of capacity, shuttered it due to unfavorable refinery economics. This closure came around the same time that Hess shuttered its PDVSA joint venture, 350,000 barrel per day refinery in St. Croix, Virgin Islands. But this was the second time in the Aruba refinery's history that it had been shut down, the first by Exxon in 1985. By 2016, Sitco signed a long-term lease with Aruba for the facility and began preliminary work to rehab the refinery into a heavy crude upgrader. This was being done to alleviate issues experienced by the PetroPR, PetroCidiano, and PetroMonogas upgraders at Venezuela's Jose Processing Complex. By last year, however, Sitco and Aruba began negotiations to terminate their agreement. Well, that agreement was finalized, and the Aruban government-run RDA has control of the facility. And since the agreement finalization, RDA has been searching for an operator for, for the facility and for storage, or even for alternative uses. I mean, the location really did make sense for PDVSA storage, but given the situation in the world and Venezuela, no bueno. So, RDA is evaluating proposals that were submitted in July for the site. Venezuelan corruption has not only affected its domestic oil business, but has extended to these other Caribbean locales. And we could talk PDVSA in Cuba, Colombian smuggling refined products into Venezuela, and other Caribbean corruption in the energy business. Now we're running out of time today, but hey, good news. Uh, Jim and I will be doing a Caribbean energy webinar sometime towards the end of this month. And once we get the official date and time, we'll get that posted and look forward to having you join us. With that, Jim, please close us out. Influence rubs people the wrong way if it's not going in your favor. Corruption is a cancer that stops industry dead in its tracks. And as we all experienced in our lives, it will linger in the air for years as the smell of distrust clouds decisions for a generation. Next week, Corey and I will be talking about ESG and could have a surprise guest. It's a surprise because he doesn't know he's speaking yet. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Jim. Have a great week, everyone.